if I can make a sacrifice of myself to potentially help thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, that is the right thing to do. After months of living under lockdown, people all over the world are hungry to know when they'll be able to safely return to normal life. But as long as COVID-19 is still out there, that won't be possible without widespread testing, contact tracing, and eventually a vaccine. Experts say the development of a safe and effective vaccine will take at least a year, maybe a lot longer. What are we willing to risk to speed that up? This is Making the Call, a podcast about how we make impossible choices. I'm Zeke Emanuel. I'm an oncologist, a bioethicist, and a health policy expert. And I'm Jonathan Moreno. I'm a bioethicist, philosopher, and historian. This is the first in a three-part series all about vaccines. Thousands of healthy people have already volunteered to be deliberately infected with the coronavirus in order to test potential vaccines. Is that ethical? Zeke, it feels like the whole world is waiting for a vaccine, but the truth is that any vaccine is going to need to be tested before we start giving it to people. Now, to test a vaccine, some people are going to have to actually get the infection and get sick to prove whether or not the vaccine works. So right at the heart of vaccination research is this ethical dilemma. Somebody has to be exposed. Somebody has to take on that risk. Historically, the people who have had to take that risk have been people who didn't or couldn't give their full consent. This goes all the way back to the very first attempts at inoculation in North America. There's this famous case from Boston in 1721. There was a terrible smallpox epidemic, and Cotton Mather, the famous Puritan minister, had heard that if you take the pus of a smallpox pustule and you rub it onto someone else, they get a very mild case of smallpox and they become immune. So a doctor named Boylston heard about this from Cotton Mather and decided to try it. And he tried it on his son, Thomas, and his own slave and the slave's son, and it worked. And so he infected about 200 people in Boston and proved that fewer people died from his treatment with smallpox pus than from the natural smallpox that was raging in the city. All right. So that had a happy ending. But nonetheless, today, we wouldn't say that children and enslaved people could consent to be intentionally exposed to a deadly infection. And this isn't just a problem from 300 years ago. As recently as the late 1960s, researchers in New York were exposing institutionalized children deliberately to the hepatitis virus. And this was at a place called the Willowbrook State School. It was on Staten Island. Willowbrook took care of very disabled children. It was severely overcrowded. Conditions were terrible. It was, to put it mildly, unsanitary. The kids were being exposed to each other's bodily fluids, including feces. So they had a huge hepatitis problem. Almost all the kids were getting hepatitis at Willowbrook. So a group of NYU researchers were trying to come up with a way to prevent hepatitis, a prophylaxis against hepatitis. To do that, they took some children who they knew did not have hepatitis into the institution, and then they deliberately infected them. They figured, well, these kids are going to get hepatitis anyway in Willowbrook, so we might as well use them as experimental subjects. It is the case that often these trials of trying to prevent 
deadly infections involve children, involve institutional settings, and really raise deep ethical dilemmas. But we have to consider the other side, which is there's a reason you're trying to do this experiment. Smallpox killed millions of people and was very deadly. You know, right now we're trying to find a vaccine for coronavirus. It's killed hundreds of thousands of people around the world. These are serious infections with serious outcomes, in, and we need vaccines. And therefore, vaccines need to be tested on people, and people need to get the very infection we're trying to prevent. So one way to do that, a much more systematic way, a more controlled way, and hopefully a more ethical way than these historical cases we've been talking about, is something called a human challenge trial. A challenge trial is a way of deliberately exposing volunteers to infection as a way of testing a vaccine. This is Josh Morrison. He's one of the founders of a new organization called One Day Sooner. In a normal clinical trial to study a vaccine, to study whether it's effective, what you do is you take, let's say something like 5,000 people, you divide them into a group that gets the vaccine and a group that gets a placebo. Then you wait a month or two for the vaccine to go into effect and you let them just kind of like live their daily lives for a few months. And the idea is that over those several months, maybe 1% or 2% or 5% of them will get infected. And then you compare the different groups to see who got infected more. With the challenge trial, it's pretty similar, except instead of uh, just having people live their regular lives and having 1% or 2% get infected, you bring them into a biocontainment facility where they're isolated and they can't spread it to other people. As opposed to waiting for 2% or 5% of people to get infected just going about their normal lives in a challenge trial, almost all the volunteers will get infected if the vaccine doesn't work. So that means you only need about 100 people in these challenge trials compared to the thousands of people needed for a normal vaccine trial. And you're monitoring them constantly. So you can see very clearly the effect of the vaccine and the effect of the infection and things like that. And you can find out pretty quickly because they all get infected at once, right? So you can be done with a challenge trial in maybe a few months, whereas a traditional trial to test the same thing might take half a year or more. So human challenge trials are still used for diseases like malaria, dengue fever, typhoid, cholera, and the flu, but not for COVID-19, or at least not yet. And that's partly because the coronavirus is still very, very new. It's a deadly disease without a proven rescue therapy. So that means that if you've been infected and then the vaccine doesn't work, you could be in real trouble. Even so, Josh Morrison's organization, One Day Sooner, has already gotten 25,000 people in more than 100 countries to sign up online to volunteer for challenge trials, just in case we want to use them. Now, when so many people sign up to be potentially infected with a deadly virus that most of us are trying very hard to avoid, that raises a lot of eyebrows. So our producer, Max, spoke to Josh Morrison to learn more. Yeah, I never thought I'd uh, end up where I am now, so it's a bit funny. So I, I, um, I'm a kidney donor, first of all. That's like the, a relevant start to the story. About eight years ago, Josh donated a kidney to a stranger. I had been thinking about donating for quite a while. It sounded pretty incredible to be able to save someone's life when the risks to you were going to be a lot less than the benefits to them. And I'd been very privileged growing up. I was financially comfortable, but I also just had amazing parents and a really loving family. 
So I felt very privileged in life and felt like I should give back and felt like the ability to save someone's life was like a kind of superpower. At the time, Josh was a corporate lawyer, but he was inspired by his own experience donating a kidney to start an organization, Wait List Zero. His big idea was to get the very long waiting list for healthy kidneys down to zero by making it easier for people to do what he had done. But when COVID-19 hit, the pipeline for transplants basically shut down, which left Josh, like a lot of us, feeling pretty helpless. Here I am just being completely depressed and enervated in response to the the outbreak, in response to this terrible, tragic situation. And I really wanted to be active, to be empowered, to be in the fight, to be doing something useful. Everything changed when he read an article about challenge trials. I actually didn't know what a challenge trial was. I didn't know that we did challenge trials. But when I read the article and it said that you could potentially save months of developing a vaccine, I thought, wow, that's a that's a pretty good idea. Okay, so just like a back of the envelope estimate, let's say that uh, like one out of six people are gonna get COVID-19 every year throughout the world. And that a vaccine is gonna prevent 0.2% of those people from dying. That means that each day is 7,000 lives saved. Or that means, you know, a month is a couple hundred thousand lives. A few months is almost a million lives. So that's just an enormous impact. And the idea that I could do something and be part of something that could have that big of an impact, what am I doing with my life if I don't want to do that? He figured he wasn't alone in feeling this way. So he started a new organization called One Day Sooner. And since the end of March, more than 25,000 people have signed up through One Day Sooner to participate in human challenge trials. One of those volunteers is Carson Polterek. I have been thinking about what it would be like. I'm imagining a lot of Netflix, a lot of reading books. Carson Polterek is 23 years old. He's supposed to begin medical school at the University of Pennsylvania this fall. Unless, of course, he's in a lab somewhere instead, being deliberately infected with the coronavirus. It's, you know, it's, it's like being sick. Some people get really quite ill with this. So, you know, drawing back on my experience being sick with other viruses in the past. It's certainly not pleasant, but I think it's a finite period of time and it's something that I will, you know, I don't, I don't relish it, but it's something that I'll have to get through. If Carson doesn't sound as worried as you or I might be, that's because the death rate from COVID-19 for healthy young people is very low. Carson's parents, on the other hand, are not quite so sure this is a good idea. They expressed uh, concerns. We had a two-hour conversation where they basically just told me how they feel um, about me doing something like this, and they're not thrilled. Uh, so I'm an only child, and my dad, you know, was like, yeah, like, our, you know, our world revolves around you. I mean, you, you know, you are our only son, and it would be obviously heartbreaking for anything bad to happen to you. They agree ethically that the trial should be done, but they don't think that I should be the one to do it because they feel some sort of maybe parental pride, like they think that I'm going to do other things in my life that will help people. And so <laughs> this was kind of like a maybe an elitist point of them to make, but they were like, well, you're going to do an MD-PhD, you're going to maybe help treat some disease at some unidentified point in the future. Why not just let some other person who might not do something like that volunteer? 
Carson finds this argument hard to swallow. I really kind of start my moral philosophy with sort of the base principle that I consider everybody's life to be equally valuable. I don't think that I am more entitled to my life than necessarily anybody else. You do, in some sense, have to consider downstream consequences, right? I mean, if they are right and like whatever I am able to end up doing in my career also is to the benefit of thousands of people, but if I die in this trial, then, you know, that never happens, right? Like, I think in a sense that that is compatible with my worldview, but it's just tough to articulate oh, somebody who bags groceries should do this because they're not going to ever save thousands of people because they didn't have access to elite education and go to medical school and do all of this. Do you understand what I'm coming from? Something bad could happen to me, but the bad things are already happening to a thousandfold more people on the other side of the coin. And those people have friends and families too who will be crushed if something bad happens to them. So I don't have a necessarily a personal connection to anybody who has had COVID-19 or who has died from COVID-19. But ethically, it seems to me to be the right thing to do that if I can make a sacrifice of myself to potentially help thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, that is the right thing to do. So what do you think, Zeke? If one of your kids came to you and said, I signed up for a human challenge trial today, what would you say? Well, in point of fact, my brother actually asked me, should he sign up for a trial of the uh, coronavirus vaccine? I said, you know, you have to be clear about the risks you're taking because even healthy people who sometimes get coronavirus can get really sick and we don't know the long-term consequences. But I wouldn't stand in their way. I do think it is an ethical, altruistic thing to do. Sometimes I do wonder about the motivation. I think with my kids, I probably wouldn't wonder. I think it would be purely altruistic. And I think that they're perfectly sane. So uh, I'm not sure I would encourage it, but I am pretty sure I wouldn't lie down on the tracks. I guess I'd say uh, with my kids, if they want to do something like that, and I, I could imagine it. I'd say, well, this is the way we brought them up, so this is what we get for it. (laughs) These are the values that we tried to transmit, and now we're paying for that. So, Jonathan, I think the one other complication with my kids, which is a little different than your kids, is the stage of life. All of my kids have just recently become parents, and I think you know that adds a complication to the calculus if you somehow suddenly became sick and weren't the parent you imagined. So I I do think that I can understand Carson's parents' view that he can contribute in other ways and that he should not think that this is the only way he can contribute to the world and be altruistic. It's very hard, isn't it, to do this kind of metaphysical balancing? I mean, what kind of people would they turn out to be? What kind of grandchildren would I have that I wouldn't have? I just don't know how you do that. I I guess if one of our kids came to us with this proposition, having made that decision, I I try to focus on what's going on right here and right now, where we all are in our lives. And I have to respect them for a lot of decisions that they made that I wouldn't necessarily have agreed with in the past. And things have worked out well. It's also important to talk to the real experts about these challenge studies. And we have one of our colleagues who is a real expert, Holly Fernandez-Lynch. 
She's at the University of Pennsylvania, and she's thought a lot about the ethics of medical research with human subjects and, in particular, challenge trials for vaccines. So here's Holly. So, Holly, you worked for President Obama's Bioethics Commission. Uh, How did you first get interested in the whole question of whether it's ethical for scientists to expose people to, you know, serious diseases? That's right, Jonathan. So I started uh, my interest in this question of challenge trials while staffing President Obama's Bioethics Commission. And one of the things that the commission was asked to do almost from the start was respond to revelations that the researchers who had been involved in the Tuskegee syphilis study had also been involved in research in Guatemala, where they were intentionally infecting vulnerable populations with the virus responsible for syphilis, gonorrhea, and other sexually transmitted diseases. They were doing that because they were hoping to develop prophylaxis against those viruses. And You actually need people to be exposed to the virus in order to tell whether your prophylaxis works. Again, a prophylaxis is a kind of preventive treatment against, in this case, syphilis. So they headed off to Guatemala because at the time, prisoners were allowed to have visits with sex workers who were highly regulated, and they figured they could expose prisoners in this really controlled setting to these STIs to figure out how they were transmitted and whether the prophylaxis was working. It's harder, actually, to transmit these viruses than the researchers had anticipated, and so they took the sex workers out of it and started intentionally inoculating people with the virus. And they were doing this with prisoners and with soldiers and with patients in mental asylums, many people who didn't have the capacity to consent in the first instance, but the researchers didn't ask for consent in any event. They were extremely sloppy in their research and kept it hidden until a historian stumbled across the papers in the archives of one of the researchers. So when that got revealed, President Obama asked his commission to figure out what had happened and to make sure that something like this could never happen again. I had never heard of challenge trials before working on that project. And many people responded to what happened in Guatemala by saying, oh, my gosh, it was so unethical that people were intentionally exposed in this way. But actually, there are ways to do challenge trials in a safe and ethical way. And so we tried to distinguish what was unethical about Guatemala, the lack of consent, the use of vulnerable people, the lack of social benefit from the ethical standards for appropriate challenge trial design. So that's how I started working on this. And then over the past several years, I've been a part of an effort to build out a more robust ethics framework for challenge trials and emerging infectious diseases. We were just putting the finishing touches on that framework in January. And then obviously, you know what happened next. Uh, with COVID. And so we've published an application of that framework in science earlier this month. So Holly, I understand that the process for developing a new vaccine is basically the same as the process for developing a new drug. You go through a series of clinical trials, you gather up the data, you submit it to the FDA so that they can make a final decision on whether it's safe and effective. But when it's a new drug versus a new vaccine, does that change the way we think about safety and effectiveness? 
I think it does, right? So the trade-offs for any product are dramatically different if you're talking about giving that product to healthy people versus giving it to people who are sick. So, you know, FDA is making its approval decisions on a case-by-case, product-by-product basis. There's no such thing as kind of objective safety and effectiveness. It's really specific to the product in question. So for a drug that's intended to treat sick people, you might be willing to accept higher risks for greater benefits associated with potentially saving their lives or dramatically shortening their time to recovery and getting them out of hospitals more quickly to free up capacity for other patients in need. When you're dealing with vaccines and healthy people, there are other things that they can do to avoid getting infected, right? I'm doing this interview right now from the comfort of my bedroom, right? I don't really have to go out if I don't need to other than to get groceries and I can have those delivered, right? There are other ways that I can protect myself from getting infected with this virus. And so the balance of safety and efficacy for healthy people is much different, right? I'm probably less likely to be willing to accept risks as a healthy person than I would be if I was already infected with the virus. So when the FDA reviews a vaccine, the safety has to be much, much more and the side effects have to be few and less severe, I take it. (laughs) You say have to be, and I would like to think that's the case. That's what ought to happen, but I'm not certain, to be honest, what standard and level of rigor FDA will apply in this context, right? They're getting a tremendous amount of political pressure from the president who's making these pronouncements left, right, and center that we are going to have a vaccine in hand. Whether it's safe and effective seems to be the last thing on his mind. So I I hope that FDA will apply rigorous standards to approving a vaccine candidate in this context. There's a lot at stake here, right? We have this whole anti-vax movement where people are skeptical of vaccine safety. And so if something were to go wrong for a coronavirus vaccine, that could be really devastating for the willingness of the American population and the global population to take other vaccines that we know are safe and effective for other infectious diseases. We'll be right back. So Holly... In this episode so far, we talked to a couple of people who've actually signed up for possible human challenge trials for COVID-19 through this website you probably know about called One Day Sooner. Many other people would say it's really disconcerting that you'd intentionally expose people to a serious disease, even healthy young volunteers. What do you say to that? Are there any limits to the amount of risk that you would expose people to? I don't think, I may be in the minority on this amongst research ethicists, I don't think that there is an objective upper limit of risk that we can expose competent, consenting, healthy adults to. I think, you know, because I'm a lawyer, you won't be surprised. I think we should just apply a reasonableness standard, right? We can expose consenting adults to a reasonable level of risk in relation to the benefits that we are anticipating. So if it were to turn out that we could really speed up the development of a vaccine and getting that vaccine into the hands of at-risk populations by doing a challenge trial and we could minimize the risks, then I think it could be acceptable to do that in this context. Whether it would actually speed things up, I think is an open question. So even in the safety first part of the process you're talking about, what you try to do is you try to give them this candidate vaccine in a way that you think will, you know, will not hurt them. 
but it's still possible it could, right? I mean, that's why you're checking out safety. Yeah, absolutely. It definitely could hurt them. Um, that's why we're studying it. And in the talk about challenge trials, it's, oh, we could do this with so many fewer volunteers. I don't think we could actually approve or would want to approve a product based only on challenge trials, right? There might be serious adverse events that you wouldn't see in a population of 30 people, right? If we have a vaccine for coronavirus, it's going to go out to, you know, millions of people and we'll see safety concerns come up in those populations. So we're going to want to do trials and, and at least thousands of people. And even still, when it gets released, you know, amongst the population, there are going to be adverse events that we didn't see in trials. How often do people volunteer for something where, if not everyone dies, but at least some people have the potential to die as part of a trial? That just seems a little highly unusual, you might say. I think that's right. I mean, in the challenge trials that we do already, they aren't the types of diseases that are likely to cause death, right? We know how to treat them or they're, you know, not very severe in the first instance. And similar for phase one drug studies, you know, the risks are minimized and it's very unlikely that you'll die in a phase one drug study, although the risks are not zero. That's the distinction for challenge trials in something like COVID-19, right? That's why this is an ethical debate. Should we be willing to expose people, even consenting people to the risks of death or, you know, short of death, pretty horrible disease with adverse events that we don't yet fully understand. But I thought I heard you, Holly, say that you didn't think there was an upper limit to risk that a consenting adult could take, that people could consent to some risk of death. That seems like an unusual position to take. I do think that's true. I don't think there's an upper limit of risk. I think you have to balance the risks with the benefits that the trial might produce. So in this context, if it were actually true that a challenge trial would risk death for some individuals, but would produce a safe and effective vaccine very quickly and facilitate getting it into the hands of people who need it very quickly, I think it is plausible that we could accept some risk of death. Now, I'm not suggesting to do challenge trials in elderly populations who we know are at the highest risk of dying from this disease, right? There are there would be an ethical responsibility to minimize risks in these circumstances, and the way you would do that would be enrolling only young, healthy volunteers without comorbidities who are in the lowest risk population. But if you were to enroll 20-year-olds who didn't have comorbidities and you were to put them in an inpatient setting where they could be very closely monitored and provided best available care, which is not yet a cure, we don't have a cure, it's conceivable that we could really minimize the risks and very likely that we could avoid the possibility of death, but it wouldn't be a zero risk. I don't think we need to have a zero risk. I can perfectly understand why it's younger people who are signing up for these challenge trials, because they do face lower risks of dying. But does that actually make sense from an ethical perspective? If a 20-year-old dies, that seems more tragic than if an 85-year-old dies, because a 20-year-old person has their whole life in front of them. So having a 20-year-old submit to challenge trials, that seems ethically backwards to me. 
Not to me. And the reason why is that I think the analogy to other risky work is really compelling here, right? So we send young people off to war with the anticipation that some of them are going to be seriously injured or die, right? And, you know, we can get into like just war theory and whether that's actually an appropriate thing to do. But the idea is that when the benefits of kind of military engagement are sufficiently high, then we're willing to potentially risk those those types of sacrifices from consenting adults. Kind of a less intense example might be people deciding to be police officers or firefighters, right? Things to which they are exposed to the risk of death for substantial societal benefit. I don't think there's been enough discussion about that chance for societal benefit in the context of COVID-19 challenge trials. There seems to be this assumption, oh, we could do these more quickly, we would have fewer healthy volunteers, and that means that we would necessarily move things more quickly. I don't know that that's true. The reason is we're not ready to launch a challenge trial tomorrow. You actually need to develop the challenge strain and to purify it, figure out exactly how much virus you need to expose people to, to have it mirror natural infection. So those things could take months. And then even if challenge trials could, you know, help us figure out which vaccines were worth further study, I still think we're going to have to go through those big phase three studies so that we have a clear enough sense of safety. And then you have to actually manufacture the, the vaccine and distribute it. So I'm a little confused here, Holly. Is your objection to challenge studies a practical one? We're just not ready. It's not going to be faster. Or is it an ethical one that exposing people somehow to death, to the possibility of death, would be a bad thing. Ethically, I think there are conditions that could be satisfied that would allow it to be permissible to proceed with a challenge trial for an emerging infectious disease like coronavirus, where we don't have a treatment and could potentially kill people if the benefits were sufficiently great to outweigh those risks, right? So that's kind of in the abstract. I think those conditions could plausibly be satisfied. In reality, I don't think those conditions have yet been satisfied for a challenge trial with this virus. So, Holly, one of the things I'm interested in is in the United States, we generally do not have a compensation system if people get harmed in a trial. So if I get a side effect and it's, you know, call it severe, I actually can't get compensation. Many other countries, it's a requirement that you get compensation. Do you think it's important to have that requirement as part of a COVID-19 trial of a vaccine or especially if it's a challenge study? Absolutely. Yeah, we definitely need to make sure that we're compensating people who experience injury or harm. And you've hit on a topic that I actually think there's probably close to 100% agreement amongst research ethicists that it's kind of a national scandal that we don't require injured research participants to be compensated. That doesn't necessarily mean that they are not in fact compensated. Institutions can voluntarily decide to take care of research participants who are injured, but they're not required to do so. The regulations simply require that you tell people one way or another what will happen to them in the event they experience harm. I think that's really problematic when we're asking people to take on risks for the benefit of society. Zeke, we've talked a lot about whether challenge trials are ethical, but the truth is we don't even know at this point if challenge trials will be helpful in sorting out the dozens of candidate vaccines that are out there right now. 
And I think what Holly was trying to say is that if they're not that helpful, they're not ethical. What do you think? Jonathan, I think she's absolutely right. If challenge trials don't speed up approval of a vaccine or proving that one is better than the others, then there's no real reason to take on the added ethical challenges that they pose. We've already seen in the last few weeks some vaccines proven to actually increase antibodies in both animals and humans. That gives us a lot of hope we really will develop a vaccine. And maybe in the fall, we'll be into the sort of phase three testing of a vaccine to see if it's effective. And if the challenge trial protocols aren't sorted out by the fall, then they can't really help. Yeah, it does seem like we're in kind of a race between you know emerging promising vaccine candidates and all the conversation about the ethics of challenge trials. It might be that you know that's a very useful conversation to have, but it just might not be relevant six months from now. Yeah. And even after we get a proven vaccine, there are lots of other hurdles raising other ethical issues that we're going to have to confront. We actually have to manufacture hundreds of millions, if not billions of doses. We have to distribute it. Then we have to administer it. And I think each of those episodes raises questions. It seems like the further we get into this pandemic, the more bioethical issues emerge. There's so much heavy lifting that we're going to have to confront in the next year or more including manufacturing and distributing the vaccine. We'll get into that in the next episode. Making the Call is a production of Endeavor Content, executive produced by Max Friedman, Jonathan Moreno, and me, Zeke Emanuel. Created by Jonathan Moreno and Zeke Emanuel. Our managing producer is Jasmine Romero, Research help from Aaron Glickman. Mixing and engineering provided by Sam Bayer. If you like this episode, make sure to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. You can also let us know what you think by tweeting at us at MakeTheCallPod. Thanks for listening and stay safe. Stay safe.